Good morning, church. How we doing? Feeling good. Some of us, we, uh, we got an extra hour of sleep today because church is at 10. Some of us had to wake up an extra hour early, and so we might even be a little sleepy this morning. But if I hadn't had the chance to meet you, my name is Phil Carroll. I'm the student pastor here um, at Salem Chapel. Really excited about this opportunity. And if you have your, your Bible, you can turn to Revelation 2. We're going to be in... Um, verses 1 through 7 today. And if you've been around church or if you've been around maybe even Christian culture for a little while, this, this text might seem like a familiar one um, for you. But as I, as I prepared, I really felt like, man, this was a week for us to, to kind of pause, to kind of take a step back that we are, and we're coming off of summer, we're coming off of a, a gyra series, and we're all about to launch into a new series, and we're about to launch into the busyness of fall and really just give us this time to to exhale and even evaluate the foundations of our lives and also our faith through Revelation 2, 1 through 7. So before I, I came to Winston-Salem about a year ago, me and my wife Lizzie, we lived um, in Asheville and we had bought a house up there and it was awesome. It was like the HGTV special that you might see on TV. It was like Chip and Joanna Gaines type of deal where it was just a fixer-upper, right? I, I, it was awesome. We painted the walls. We redid a bathroom. We scraped the ceilings. And if you've ever done that, I'm telling you, don't ever do it. It's the worst thing you could possibly do is scrape the ceilings. But the best thing, and I guess the worst thing about this place was that I got a killer deal on it, right? It was in like the, heart, the height of COVID. House prices were kind of higher, but I got this killer deal on it. And the reason why I did was because this house had been a parsonage for a little while. It turned into this rental place. And I don't know about if you know anything about rentals, but rentals aren't always the best taken care of. And so the, the gutters had been clogged for quite some time. And so when it would rain, basically what would happen is rain would start to pour over top of the gutters and it would pull up at the, right at the foundation of this house. And so over time, the water started to seep, seep into the ground and it started getting down into the soil. And what that happens, and if you know anything about um, water getting close to your house and foundations, is some, there's this something called hydrostatic pressure which means water is in the ground, it starts to press against the foundation of your house, and as it starts to do that, if your foundation cannot handle that, it starts to form a little crack in the foundation. So when I bought this house, there was this crack along the foundation of my house. And if you know anything about houses, cracks in our foundation, if, if they're not addressed, they can be catastrophic, right? Like, it doesn't matter how, how much I help paint that I put on the walls or how pretty my tile is, which I can tell you it was extremely pretty, or, how, or even how mid-century modern that I would like to make it look. Like, if I don't address this crack in my foundation, my house is going to come down at some point in time. Like, it's going to uproot my life. It's going to cost me way more than I want to spend, and it's going to take way more time than I want to give. And here's the point of that. And I believe in the same way Jesus here to the church of Ephesus, and really if you were to continue to read on to the next seven churches that he writes to in Revelation, he is revealing and is exposing these cracks in the foundation of the early church. He's saying this, and if, if you don't address this church, your church is going to fail. If you don't see this and address it, it's going to fall. So what is he doing? He's coming in. He's, he's doing an inspection. He's going into the basement of the church of Ephesus, and he's shining a light on the crack in the foundation that they don't even know that they have yet. 
Jesus says this. He says, I have an issue with you. And there's something wrong here. Church, there's a crack in your foundation. And yes, this is written thousands of years ago to a particular church at a particular time. But that does not mean and that it cannot be true for my heart and also your heart as well. That I believe that through this passage that Jesus is going to start shining a light on a crack in some of our foundations. This is what he says to the church of Ephesus. If you have your Bible, we'll read the passage. He says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word that you have given us, God, that you have written it to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. But Lord, those truths... (laughs) And they still ring true in our hearts today. God, I pray that as you speak through your word, Lord, that you will start shining a light in the cracks of some of our foundations today. Lord, not out of, out of malicious intent, but Lord, out of love for us. God you, God, you love us. You care for us. Lord, would you speak to us and our hearts. Lord, we love you so much. In your son's name, amen. If, you, if you're taking notes And if I was to really have a title for this message, it would be this, first things first. If I was to pose a question to you, this would be my questions. What are your affections drawn to? Like, what do you love? Like, what spurs up passion within you? Like, if I was to look at the search history of your heart, what would it say? What would it tell us? Because I don't know about you, but when I read these words from Jesus, they're troubling to me. Like, they really bother me. Like, they make me really uncomfortable. Because what Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus is that you can do all the right things. You can be all the right things. You can know all the right things. You can say all the right things, and you can still miss him. Like, we can miss him. Like, we can have really good intentions. Man, that we could be be doing the Bible reading tool. We could be doing the prayer tool. We could be in life group and restore and all these other ministries and we can make it more about doing those things than actually being with him. And all those things, don't hear me wrong, those things are not bad things. Like those are great things. They were created for you to fall more deeply in love with your Savior, but how often do we make it more about doing than actually being? I'm so guilty of this. I make it more about what a checklist. I read my Bible today. Let's, let's check that off. 
I shot up a prayer today. Let me check that off. I, I showed up to group today. I checked that off. Instead of using these tools to stir up my affections for Jesus and for him to fall deeper in love with him, we melt it down to obligation and even duty. Like some of us, we're guilty of this where we love our theology more than we love him. Like we love our knowledge about him more than we love him. And some of us, we've grown up in the South and around church, and we show up to church because that's what mom and dad raised us to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Like, we think that our attendance and our good deeds are going to get God on our good side, so somehow he now owes us, that he will be obligated to give us what we want. What Jesus, he's trying to do today, he's trying to bring a flashlight into our lives and said, man, you have done so many, so many things right, so many things good. So many things honorable, honorable, but you have your priorities all wrong. That at somewhere along the way, you've made the secondary the primary. That along the way, you've made it more about tithing. You made it more about mission work. You made it more about right theology more than you did about me. You made the secondary. Don't hear me wrong. They are good things. But you made it more about those things you knew you did about me. You made it the primary he says, I don't, I don't want to just be on your list of priorities. No, I, I want to be first on your list. Like, I don't want you to do this, this following me thing out of obligation or duty or treat me like some genie that's just trying to get what you want. No, I want a relationship with you. Like, I want to be first on your list of priorities. So what is he doing today? He's giving us an opportunity <laughs> and to be reminded, to take a step back and evaluate on where Jesus is on our list. And if he's not today, if he's not there, he's gonna give us some really practical ways to reorder our list through this passage. So here is John. He's delivering this piece of mail from Jesus to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was considered to be the New York City of its time. I mean, it was a vibrant city. Forty years before this text was actually given, the apostle Paul walks into town, and Ephesus deems it so essential of all the cities that he walks into to plant a church. He spends the longest time in Ephesus. How long? Three years. He plants a growing community, a diverse community of Jews and Gentiles, and you can read all about it, which I would really encourage you to do in Acts 19 and 20. And this community, it starts to grow, it becomes this emerging missionary hub, and really it's a church to be admired. Like, I just want you to think, I was thinking about this this week, listen to the pastors that were um, at this church. I mean, they're the best that you could have. Before Paul walks into town, there's this man named Apollos. In Acts 18, 24, he's considered to be an eloquent man, and he's also competent in scriptures. Then Paul walks into town. I mean, awesome. Like, he's amazing, right? Great pastor, what you would think, right? Timothy, I mean, his disciple. I mean, that, that dude's a rock star, gotta be as well. And then John is considered to be an elder and a teacher of Ephesus. I mean, that's some of the best of the best, like these people knew theology, they knew right doctrine, and when Paul writes to them to, in the book of Ephesians, like we barely even see one rebuke. Like they have their stuff together. And even if you were to think about this list of churches that Jesus ends up writing to in Revelation, the fact that Ephesus is first is almost like this indicator light, this beacon of its influence, that this was an amazing church, that this was, this was a church that you would want to be a part of. 
that you would want your kids to go to. Like from the outside, there seems to be nothing wrong. This church is spotless. We would want to emulate this church. And Jesus, he opens up these words to them in verse one, and he says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now let's stop there. Because I, I believe the first verse could kind of be a little clunky and a little confusing. So we need to address that first. He says this, many scholars believe that angel here is really actually meant to mean a pastor or elders of the church of Ephesus. That if you were to think about the main function of an angel, their function would be what? To be a messenger, meaning that Jesus is addressing, he is writing to the messengers of the church of Ephesus or the pastors or the elders. And as he is talking to the leaders, he says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now let's stop there. What all exactly are the seven stars in the seven golden lampstands? We don't have to go very far. Why don't you look up in your Bible to Revelations 1.20. This is what it says. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels. So the, the pastors, the elders of the church or of the, of the seven churches, and then the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here he's talking to the leaders of the church of Ephesus that the pastors and the elders of the early church are in his hand, in his right hand, and also that he's been walking among the churches. This is meant to show us something and remind us of something that the fact that they, the leaders and the elders are in his hand is this picture of God's sovereign reign and control for the church. I, I almost picture it like this. Like it, it like, it's almost like this reminder of how I see it. It's like, don't forget who actually is in control of these churches. He ends up saying, like, I I've been walking among you. Like, I've been walking among the, the churches. My presence is near to you. Like, I'm not far away from you. And I, I don't want you to see this picture. Like, it's not a picture of Jesus being this cosmic cop in the sky, just trying to pick out every little thing that's going on. No, it's actually a picture of his presence and care for the churches. That his rebuke is not one of malicious intent, but one to bring into alignment the churches of Jesus Christ. That he is in control and he is present. Why? Because he loves these churches. He cares for them. He died for these churches. That is his church. I kind of think of it like this way. When, when I was in elementary school, like, I kind of have to confess this, if I'm honest. It's first or second grade, I can't really remember, but I, I pushed another little boy down on the playground. I know, not the best action to do, but if I remember quickly, I, he was talking to my crush, okay? Like, I had to take matters into my own hands. Like, I couldn't let that happen, all right? Like, I had to, you know, hey, just watch out, right? And so, obviously, I push him, he falls to the ground, and I get in trouble, Right, they call my parents, my parents aren't happy. They start to discipline me, they rebuke me, and dare I say in 2022, they spanked me. Don't worry, it was the 90s, okay? <laughs> and then they made me apologize. But at the time, for me as this first grade kid, I'm like, man, I, this discipline thing's not fun. Like, I don't like this. Like it's easy in the motions of being disciplined to be like, man, my parents don't love me or they just, they just wanna harm me. Man, I don't like this discipline thing. But when you start to grow up, you start to understand something. That the fact that they disciplined me was actually a sign of their love for me. Parents, we know this. 
that they were, they were showing love for me because they were trying to correct me because guess what, if I didn't learn that lesson then, man, I would have grown up and when anything didn't go my way or made me angry, like I would result in violence. It's like if I was out in the lobby, you made me angry, I'd just push you down, right? It's called assault, I'd probably go to prison, okay? Like that's something I needed to learn. What's the point? Jesus here is showing his love for the church of Ephesus and also his love for us through this rebuke. Some of us, man, we're already feeling some shame today, like over this this topic. And Jesus is saying like, first and foremost, just listen. Listen to me, I, I love you. Like, I'm in control, I'm with you. And my, rebu- my rebuke, my correction, my discipline is to bring you back into right relationship with me. It's out of his love that he disciplines and rebukes. He starts to avert, first address the church of Ephesus in the next couple of verses by doing this. He kind of gives this little outline. If you start to look at this passage, he does this. He gives them a praise. He also gives them a rebuke. And then he corrects them. So he starts to praise them. He says this in verses two and three. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus here, he, he lists off nine areas where he starts to applaud them. He says, man, great job, like home run, you're killing it. You did these, these great, you did these awesome things. And I'm not going to cover all nine today because I really believe that these nines kind of boil down to these two categories. They had right behavior and they also had right Beliefs. He says, I know your works. I've seen your works. Those are those things that, I, that are evident about you. You have right behavior. He says, your toil. That this church is a hard-working church. Like if you were to look at the word toil in the Greek, it really means to labor to the point of exhaustion. That this is not a lazy church. This is a church that gets after it. They serve in their community. They tie. They take care of the poor and so on. Then he says, you have waited. You've patiently endured. Like they are a faithful church. That this word endurance is a power to endure through hardship and stress. That during this time in Ephesus, like you could be killed for your faith, you could lose your job, and so much more. And he says, man, you have weathered all of those things and you have still endured. Man, you have right behavior. You're a hardworking church and you are a faithful church. But not only that, but you have right beliefs. He says, as how, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested with those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Man, they have right beliefs. They are a discerning church. Like they know right theology and right teaching. They're able to discern what is from God and what is, what is not. This is a, a sign of their maturity. That they're able, when someone is speaking, They're able to discern if that is from God or if it is not. This is a great job and a check mark on their resume of being a church. They are not only just a right behaving church, they're hard working and faithful, but they have right beliefs. They are discerning. Can't you hear Jesus clapping? Man, great job. And you have right behavior. You have your hard working and faithful church. You have right beliefs and you are discerning and then you get to chapter, or verse four. See that word but there. (laughs) 
He says, but I have this against you. Here, here, Jesus is coming right off the praise for the church, right to the rebuke, and he doesn't beat around the bush. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned. The word abandoned there is the Greek word that really means to send away. It's used a lot of times for forgiveness of offenses. That to forgive is to send away an offense. That we send it away, which is great for forgiveness and offenses, but it's terrible for your relationship with Jesus. That Jesus says, you have sent me away. You've sent me away. Remember, he's not talking to people that are not Christ followers, living life on their own. He's not talking to people that are sitting at home on Sunday morning. He's not talking to people that have not been saved for years. He says this, I have an issue with you. At some point, ministry became more important than me. At some point, your identity was placed more in your quiet time or your generosity or the fact that you have gone on mission trips. At some point, those things became more important than me. You have left your first love. Your affections are not drawn towards me. And I heard this story as I was preparing this week uh, from another pastor, and he says, and it's about math, all right? And it's, there's this section in math called order of operations. I, I'm not a math guy, right? That's not my strong suit. Like, I'm still counting on my fingers, okay? Like, don't judge me, okay? Some of you do it too, all right? And so I'm still, like, I'm still counting on my fingers on this, like, I, in the third grade, I'll have to, this is another confession, maybe this is just like Phil confession time today, but in, in third grade, I did so bad on a math test, I was so embarrassed, like back then, if you did bad, you had to you know, bring it to your parent, they had to sign off and stuff like that, I, I was so embarrassed to show my parents that I spent all day just trying to copy my dad's signature so I could like fake it on it, right? Like somebody had to have had definitely been in here who's done that with me, Right? Like, if I look back at it, I'm like, dude, it took me all day. If I would have just studied math with that time, I probably wouldn't be counting on my fingers today, right? Like, I'm not like one, two, you know, whatever. Anyway, that was a side note. Orders of operations is essentially just an equation, right? There's an essential order to complete, to be, to complete the problem. Here it is. I'm going to explain it to you. This is what it is. I had to, I had to Google it. No worries. First, we solve any operations inside of the parentheses or brackets. Second, we solve any exponents. Third, we solve all the multiplication, the division um, from left to right. And fourth, we solve any um, addition and subtraction from left to right. Any of you that just straight over your head? That's me, all right? But what what are they trying to get to? There's an order, right? You just don't jump into the problem and do it any way you want. No, like there's a process. There's an order to what you have to do. That at the core of order of operations, what it is saying is that, man, you get, if you get the math, you can get the math right, but if you get the order wrong, the whole thing is just wrong. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying in church, man, you got the math right, but you got the order wrong. And when you get the order wrong, the whole thing is just wrong. He says, man, I, I've got an issue with you. You've left your first love. Which raises this question, what is first love? He didn't just say you left your love. He says 
You left your first love. What's the difference between first love? What's the difference between second, third, fourth, fifth love? What sets love apart? What I believe sets first love apart is this, is passion. Passion sets first love apart. Anybody remember the first time you might have fallen in love? I mean, it makes you do some crazy things, right? Like you stay up super late on the phone, like you don't even care that you have work or a game the next day, whatever it might be. Like everything the person says is just funny, right? Now it's not even a joke and you're just laughing, right? You write like cheesy little cards to them or you might even write poems. Like I've seen some of the most macho guys in the world that I know and like when they meet their first love, they turn into like teddy bears, right? They're just like melting like as a puddle writing poems. Like I didn't even know you liked poems, dude. Anyway. When I first met Lizzie, and and I knew that I was in love, I ended up making this like 15-minute video of all the different memories that we, that, that showing that I loved her, right? Like, like I wanted to be with her. It it took hours to learn this software and put all the clips into order. It's just crazy what first love actually like makes you do. Like there's just passion and you do things that you just normally wouldn't do or you think that is just weird, right? Right? But I didn't do those things, or I didn't make that video out of this sense of obligation for her, or even duty for her. No, that just like flowed out of my first love for her. That my actions followed my affections. That that this is exactly what Jesus desires for us. That Jesus desires for our actions for him to flow out of our affections for him. That doing stuff for God should never take the place with actually being with God. That the stuff I do for him should flow out of this first love, passion for him, not as an obligation. And this is the simple message of our text. That any time that Jesus is not first love in our lives, this is basically what we melt it down to. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come look at my record? Come look at what all I've done. Like, I've tithed right, I've read my Bible right, man, I've prayed. Look how good of a Christian am I. And Jesus says, man, you've got it all wrong. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been about what you do, and it has everything to do with what Jesus has done. That the gospel in itself is you could not save yourself, but out of his great mercy, he sent his son Jesus to live a life that we could not live and die a death we should have died. Stop trying to earn our way into the good graces of God by, by our deeds or our right actions, and they in themselves will not and cannot save us. Can you see? I, I, was, I was shocked by this. Can you see how when, we, when Jesus is not first love in our lives, we're basically putting ourselves back underneath the law? Like we're just trying to earn our way back into the good graces of God? Like the law was meant for us to see that you could not earn your way to him, that you need a savior. It's to push you to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you. Like I love you. Thank you for what you've done on my behalf. Like my deeds, man, like I was so lost. Man, any good thing I do, there's just filthy rags. I'm just so in need of you. Like, out of your great love, you you died for me. You ran after me. Man, I was the one, and you chased me. What Jesus is saying, he's like, man, I can get tithing right. But if I get Jesus wrong, the whole thing's messed up. 
That those things must flow from an intimate relationship of abiding with him. And let me just be honest with you. Like as I was preparing this week, it was like the Lord was taking me into my basement and he was shining a light. And just say, Phil, there's a crack in your foundation. And somewhere along the way, Phil, in your pursuit to do the right things and to be the right things and to know the right things, you lost your affections for me. You lost your love for me. You lost your passion for me. Like your affections are not drawn to me. And what I know is that maybe you're there with me or you've been there before or you will be there. And my question out of that is, and how do I get back to first love? And how do I stir my affections back to Jesus? Like when my priorities are all wrong and when I put good things in front of him, when I think that my good deeds would somehow make God love me more, like what do I do? How do I get them back into order? And this is why I love this passage because it literally just lays it out in front of us. He says this in verse five. He says, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He's saying, Phil, when, when you're in this place where you love ministry more than you love me, Phil, when you love your marriage more than you love me, when you love your finances more than you love me, he says to do these three things. He says to remember, to repent, and redo. And if you think about this process, this is just the cycle of what it means to be a believer, that we are in this constant process of remembering and repenting and redoing. And honestly, it flows pretty similarly to our here in our bay tool where we'll talk about sooner rather than later. He says, remember. Remember what? Remember where you have fallen. Not remember where you've gotten it all right, but where you have fallen, where you have messed up. Remember what Jesus has saved you from. There's this story of the church in Ephesus in Acts 19, 18 through 20 that talks about believers were out of fear and really this conviction man, started coming forward. They started confessing and divulging their practices. That many of them had started practicing ma magical arts and they started, um, they started bringing their books and started to burn them in this act of repentance. And when I hear Jesus saying, hey, remember where you have fallen, I can't help but think about the story that he's talking about this. That Jesus wants the church of Ephesus to remember where he has saved them from. He's like, don't you remember like, I know you're all polished now, like with right beliefs and right behavior, but I want you to remember when you didn't have everything together. Like, I want you to remember the first time that you experienced the grace of God in your life. Like, I want you to remember the sin that you were in and the pit that you were in and, and how you were feeling. Like, I want you to remember Romans 5, 16. I mean, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. Isn't that why we take communion in the first place? Like, remember that it wasn't about me. That it was all about Jesus. And I was in a pit, and I couldn't get myself out, but Jesus reached his hand down and pulled me out of the pit. I remember. Why do we remember? Because it stirs up my affections for him. Like, when I think about how God saved my life at age 16, what I was doing, who I was around, I start thinking about, man, I was an enemy of him. 
And he saw me far off, and he says, man, Phil, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to pick you up out of your pit, man, and I'm going to give you a new right standing with me. And you're spotless now, because I have made you clean, not by anything that you have done. And when I remember that, when I start to stand on that, I can't help but be like, Jesus, I love you. Like, it's just crazy. Like, I don't even know. Like, Lord, I love you. I can't believe that you saw me in that. And you still love me and you still died for me. Church, do you remember? And the first time that the creator of the universe sent his son to die for you? How did that hit you? How did that impact you? And he's calling us to remember today. To take a pause and just think, to remember his love and his faithfulness that while I was a sinner, man, he died for me. That stirs up my affections like, Lord, I don't even know what to do with this. This is so amazing. I I can't even believe it. Lord, thank you. Oh, this is amazing. And then he says this. He says, I want you to remember, but I want you to repent. Now, the last time, and really, this is really interesting if you start to think about it. Like the last time that I checked uh, on repentance, the idea of repentance was was really this. I was going one direction, and I needed to change course. So really, I needed to change my mind. That the last time that I checked, the only thing that we repent about in the Bible is sin. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that if he is not first in our lives, it's sin. He's saying, I'm not trying to be on the list. I want to be first on the list. And here's the thing right here. Listen, if I am not first, you have built an idol in your heart. And an idol, if you don't know what an idol is, it's anything, even a good thing, that has replaced him as first in our lives. We've built an idol, a throne to something else or someone else other than him. Tim Keller says that, man, we have to be careful of the idols that ambush us. I love that language. And the other affections that capture our hearts and minds. That there will always be something on the throne of our heart that is first love. And Jesus is saying, man, if it's anything other than me, it's an idol and it's sin. He says, anything good or bad, jobs, kids, academics, athletics, Preaching and ministry can be an idol. He says we need to to repent, to return, to change our mind. And then he says this, to redo. Do the works you did at first. Do you remember when you first started following Jesus? Like you didn't know much, like you didn't have all the right language, like you just kind of fumbled around, but you were just passionate. Like you just loved the Lord You couldn't help but talk about him. There was just something in you. And if you're like me, you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to follow him. I don't know if this is right or what. You're just bumbling around. I don't know. I just love him. You know, whatever. Like, I love him. It's awesome. And Jesus is like, man, that's exactly what I want. Like, I don't need you to have all the right answers. Like, I don't need you to be buttoned up to a T. I just want your love for me. Like, I want your first love. I want to be on the throne of your heart. I want your heart search history to be for me. He says, go back to that place. You remember those moments where you weren't so clouded by the do's and the don'ts, you just loved them? Yeah, go back there. Let's do that again. Like, let's be on this continual honeymoon phase together. Let's go back there. 
He says, repent. He says, remember. He says, repent and redo. Church, where are your affections today? And this is, this is a time for us to pause, to evaluate, God, where is, where is your first love? And I'm gonna close with this. I don't know about you, but I, I want my life to look a little bit like Moses. Now, Moses, he, he has, he's messed up a lot of times, but he's, he did one really good thing that I, I just want to, like, hit up real quick. Moses, he's, he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and, and they're getting, trying to get to the promised land. You know, they spend 40 years out there, and on the way, the Lord is just tired of their, the Israelites' idols and rebellion and, and grumbling, and, and he, sa- he says to the Israelites and Moses, he says, like, you guys, I'm going to send you into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Like, I'm going to send an angel to lead you, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Like, if, if you're not going, I'm not going. Saying there's no better place than with you. Like, I don't care what the promised land has. Yeah, it has milk and honey, a lot of bees and a lot of cows and some great land. I can't, that would be awesome. But that's all null and void. It does not matter because where I want to be, even if it's in the wilderness for the rest of my life, it's with you. He doesn't care about what God can give him. He wants to be with him. Church, that's what I want of my life. This whole week was just repenting before the Lord. The Lord, I've put so many things before you. Like I've put put so many things on the throne of my heart that was never meant for them. And he's like, son, I'm still here. Just remember, repent, let's redo. And it's not out of, he's not trying to put us to shame. No, he's like a, it's like a heavenly father trying to correct us. He's trying to show us his love for us. And as we launch into so many good things at this church, man, we've got, this is an awesome church. And I just don't want to miss the, making the main thing the main thing. I don't want to get so caught up in doing that I forget about being. Like, I don't want to be that, and I don't want you to be like that. So some of us, we need to respond. We need to respond. Maybe that's in your chair today. Maybe you need to talk to a pastor or another brother or sister in Christ. Maybe, maybe you need to come, you know, down to the, to the altar. I guess you call this an altar now, stage. Come to the altar and just say, man, like, Lord, I put other things in front of you. Lord, I repent of these, and I remember what you've done. I remember where you have saved me, what you have saved me from, and Lord, I want to redo, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but just out of love for you. Man, it is of utmost importance if you continue to read in that passage, you'll see why. Let it not be said of Salem Chapel that we have lost our first love. Let it not be true of us. And as this last song plays, let us remember what he has saved us from. Let us repent and redo. Will you pray with me, Lord? I thank you for today. God, can we all, Lord, find a heart like Moses where he says, man, I don't care what you can give me. I just want to be with you. Lord, I pray that if there are hearts in this room that, Lord, have put other things as first love, that have, have crowned and put on the throne of their lives something other than you, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, that we can respond. God, that we won't get the secondary things, really, really good things out of order for love for you. 
Lord, I pray for our people. I pray for this church as we launch into this next season. God, there are a lot of things going on, and it can get so busy. God, I pray that, God, in your grace, God, would you help us keep our eyes continually on you. Lord, we love you. Your son's name, amen.